cue fake podcast music. Da, 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 da. Dun, dun. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, and other random mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Today I'm going to be talking about this murder that happened of a little girl in Pennsylvania in the 1940s. I had a couple unprecedented things about it. I don't want to give away early. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to talk about a current situation going on in Ohio. It's the Pike County Massacre where eight people were killed execution style in 2016. Oof. You want to go first or last because mine is long as get out. Let me go first. Okay, go. April 2016, eight members of the Roden family were shot in the head. The victims lived in four separate homes in the village of Piketon, a rural area in Ohio. Wait a dang second. It's not that they were all hanging out together. Someone busts in and kills the whole family. Someone went to four different homes to kill eight people? Yep. Holy yep. crap. All in the same night. See, that's when someone's put a hit out on your family. Yeah. They were all killed with a shot to the head, some while still in their beds. Each victim was shot multiple times, one being shot nine times. Dang! So that one you think was extra, people are extra mad at the dude that they shot nine times? Yeah, that was the father that got shot nine times. Oh. The murder left three children unharmed. And they were all, I So these were all under, adults then? Yep, all adults. Uh, four years and under were the other children that were left unharmed. But their parents were killed. Parents, and then, okay, so the mom and dad of the family was yeah. murdered. Yeah. Their children were murdered. Okay. A fiancé, one of them was the fiancé of the parents. Okay. And then a cousin. Wow. Yeah, so the grandchildren were all. Jeez. Fast forward to November 2018, a family of four, George, Angela, and their two children, George okay. and Edward, were arrested and charged with multiple counts, including aggravated murder of the Roden family. Now, did, wait, do you know if these families were beefing? Like, why'd they come for them? You find out, as you read the news, that one of the family of four okay one of the sons is the father of one of the rodent families great grandchildren oh it is said that this family spent months meticulously planning the murder they studied their habits and layouts of their homes and tampered with evidence. It is claimed that a child custody case played a role in these murders. But you know, it's still an open case, case, so so they don't really say much. There was also two more arrests made. Angela and George's mother were both arrested for covering up. Oh, wow. On December 17th, Angela Wagner requested a different court because of the extensive publicity which it is. It was all over the news. Okay. In addition to this, she has asked for the death penalty to be removed as an option because it is unconstitutional. What state is this in? Ohio. Oh, wow. Well, if you're going to try to avoid the death penalty, come to Michigan. <laughs> I didn't know we didn't have the death penalty. Um, we have no death penalty except for treason. We will still kill you for treason. So that's probably pretty slim. We were actually, one of my facts of the day were we were the first English-speaking government to ban... Um, oh, I remember that now yeah, on Facebook. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the Wagner family who was arrested. Yeah. So attorney says that they'll be vindicated. Uh, we'll so, see. Yeah, we'll see. So we'll have to follow this case. 
Yeah, as I say, it looks mighty suspicious yeah, that an entire crazy. family was killed in multiple locations, meaning you purposely try to wipe out a family, and there's got to be a reason. Yeah, and yeah. then a whole nother family. I thought the crazy part about it was that the was, whole family was arrested. The whole family was in on Like, it. they were all involved. Not just one person with a bad idea, but an entire yeah. family. Yeah. Holy crap. And it's like, next time, how about you fight for custody in court? <laughs> how about that instead of murdering eight people? Yeah. Okay, all right. So, hit me with what you got. All right. Mine is the vandaling murder. And I've got 99% of my information from this book that I read called Little Girl Lost, The True Story of the Vandaling Murder. It's by Tammy Mall. Tammy's family, I believe, grew up in the area where this happened. Okay. So, um, it was actually pretty interesting. So, a young girl named Mae Barrett was murdered January 2nd, 1945, which is the tail end of World War II, in a small town in Pennsylvania. Mae had moved to Vandaling, Pennsylvania to live with her maternal grandparents with her little sister, Nan. Her mother had died of ovarian cancer at a young age, and her father had two elderly aunts to care for. While Mae spent summers with her father, she was being raised by her grandparents. So she still would go home to her dad, but since he had so many responsibilities, work and elderly, she lived with her grandparents most of the time. All right, so Mae was nine years old on the night she was murdered. She was described as gutsy and spirited. Mae was known for being smart and tenacious and unafraid of challenges. She enjoyed church and being with other people. Mae was very independent for a nine-year-old girl. Sounds like it. Yeah. Mae was killed by Myron Siemenchik. A 13-year-old teenager, Myron had been described as a good-looking boy, well-mannered. His mother was a bit of a smother, a smothering mother. And her name was Anna. And there was some mom blaming that goes on in the book, but not necessarily by the author, but by people in the community at the time. But I think when it comes to psychopathy, like any type of mental illness like that, I think sometimes it's nature, sometimes it's nurture, and sometimes it's like a crapshoot of both. So Myron had been very sick as a baby, and his mother, Anna, who was already caring for her invalid mother, invalid, invalid, I'm sorry, her mother, she was a valid woman. <laughs> and I'm sorry I said that about her. <laughs> um, she already cared for her mother, um, responding, uh, she responded by coming overprotective and somewhat manipulative over her only child. She would tether him to her when he was older than five, when they were out of the house. Whoa. Yeah, so I thought baby leashes were like a new thing. No, this is the early 1930s and she has this kid on a baby leash. I would have never guessed they did that back then. Me neither. Um, he was often let out, wasn't often let out to play with other children, not even in his own yard. And he could be seen crying at the yard's gate. Sometimes, in, and sometimes in frustration, he would throw like rocks and sticks at the other kids as they walked by. And during family Sunday dinners, all the children would come dressed to play. But Anna would dress Myron up in his best clothes and then tell him that um, because he's in his good clothes, he can't go outside and get them dirtied and ruined. That's horrible. Yes. Well, now I'm starting to think why this kid might be a little touched. Yeah, and why she played could have played a role in this. All right. Well, he'd be stuck inside listening to adults talk instead of being outside with the other kids playing. That must have been torture. Yeah. He was, or he already had a hard time getting along with other kids. So, and when he did play with other kids, other kids were like, eh, you know. Well, so, obviously, he doesn't really play with them. Right? So he doesn't know what's going on. So Myron was recognized as having above average intelligence by the age of seven. After Anna's mother, Myron's grandmother, passed away, their family moved to a home on Main Street in Vandaline. So that's when he moves there. In 1939, when Myron was eight years old, he came down with chicken pox, then the mumps, then whooping cough, almost dying. He had all the diseases. Holy crap. Like one after another. 
And this could have been where his brain was fried. You know, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I'm, you know, I don't know. But he had all the diseases at one time. And after that, he started having seizures. And he had uncontrolled twitching in one arm. They thought that he had a terminal disease. But after extensive testing, a small tumor was removed from his right arm. And he made a complete recovery. So Myron's mom kicked up her overprotective behavior up an unnecessary notch. I would think so at that the, point. Yeah. He was coddled and spoiled with material goods, like they gave him whatever he wanted, but all within the confines of the house. Like, he basically was not allowed to leave the house. And eventually, Metro, Myron's dad, which I was like, that's a cool name. Yeah, that is Metro, cool. Yeah, yeah, it is. Metro put his foot down, and Myron was able to venture outside and play with the other kids, but still, like, restricted, you know. Um, parents and teachers thought that Myron was a great kid, good-looking and well-behaved, and he was athletically inclined. He was considered, quote, the golden boy, end quote, of vandaling by adults. And other kids, you know, just thought he was all right. They're yeah. like, yeah. So Myron had a weird fascination with knives, and he often carried one. He even made up a weird, like, stabby knife game he liked to play. And he also liked to play with a set of brass knuckles that he had. And usually the kids he played with were younger than him. Also, I thought that was kind of weird. Yeah. Like, always with younger kids. Myron was shy around girls, but he was interested in them. Some girls liked him. Others felt uncomfortable around Myron. It was a toss-up, like, whether or not he gave off creepy vibes. He carried a knife. He had yeah. a knife-stabbing game, and he played with brass knuckles. That would give yeah. me creepy feelings, too. Well, I, I do say, like, later on, because, it, you know, he does have some weird behavior. People are like, oh, it's just a product of the times. It's the end of the Second World War. Kids are, you know, know more about death and... They play games where you're, you're a soldier, you hold a prisoner of war. That's what they're saying, not what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. There was a time in which Myron had argued with his grandfather and pulled a hatchet on him, saying he would kill him. And his grandpa ran off, and the next time he came around Myron, everyone acted as if nothing happened. Like, Myron, his mom, his dad, like, nothing happened. And Myron had other weird, like, slightly dangerous games he liked to play, but nothing, like, they say nothing too alarming for the times. Like, yeah. what? Yeah, the country was at war, and it was considered to influence the way children played. Okay. January 2nd, 1945, May and a friend went to a church social um, gathering together in the evening. Afterward, May decided not to ride the bus that came at 8.45 and instead was going to walk the mile home. And this wasn't uncommon for, like, May or the other kids to do at the time. This must be, like, small-time life that a nine-year-old walks a mile home by yeah. herself, right? So there was really heavy snow that night, and she was bundled in, but she was bundled in full gear, including snow pants. May stopped at the local store and bought herself, her sister, and her cousin ice cream cones with the money she saved on bus fare. Aww. I know. I'm like, she was so thoughtful. As May was walking to the store, Myron and a friend named Louie were walking out. And the boys started walking to Vandaling just ahead of May by about 200 feet. So the boys made it to the edge of Vandaling and Louie headed home. His mother had been like really cross that he wanted to go out that night during a storm. And she demanded that he be home by 9 p.m. Myron told Louie that he might go to a pool hall to buy a soda, and then they both split. Myron did not go to the pool hall, but continued up Main Street. At one point, he had stopped to pick up a heavy piece of wood. He'd been having these fantasies about, quote, doing something, end quote. And in the quiet, in the dark of the snow with an unattended little girl, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to him. Myron, Myron went around the side of an auto garage called Fry's Garage and waited for May. May's house is less than 100 yards from the garage. As Myron waited, he kicked around in the snow at a pile of discarded parts and found a metal shock absorber that weighed between 8 and 10 pounds. He decided it was a better weapon, so he tossed aside the wood piece, and he continued waiting for her. At this point, May's family started to worry a little. 
When she didn't arrive at 9.15, they thought that she might have stopped by the movie theater to speak with her aunt, who worked at the ticket counter. Elizabeth, May's grandma, called, um, did call a few homes of May's playmates, and everyone agreed that they had seen her in town. Her grandma was worried about the cold and snow and thought maybe that after May had chatted with her aunt, she then took the 10 p.m. bus. So they're like, okay, she's just going to be a little late. Okay. Okay, but unfortunately... Myron Semenchik was there to stop May's journey three houses down from her own. As May passed the garage, Myron grabbed the hood of her um, coat and pulled her back, causing her to scream and like almost lose her balance. So he like pulled her off balance when he jerked her by her hood. And May wheeled around and tried to break his grip on the coat. So she instantly goes into fight mode. So when she saw who was holding her, she called out Myron's name. And this scared Myron because he didn't know that she knew his name. And he knew, like, they weren't in the same circles of friends. Mm -hmm. And he was terrified that someone heard her call out, you know, his name. So he was so startled by how strong she was when she fought to be free of him that he slammed the shock absorber into her left temple. And the blow dazed her, and she started to bleed from the temple. May's knees buckled, and Myron held on to her. And she moaned and let out some small cries, which scared him, and he began to panic some more. The two of them were close to occupied homes, and he wanted her to be quiet. He struck her again with the shark absorber again as hard as he could, and then this time she, like, went limp. Myron grabbed her under her arms and, like, dragged, carried her into a house that he knew, to a house that he knew was unoccupied, like, in the, they're in the, like, lawn area. Okay. May's head wound had left a trail of blood, and as Myron drugged May to a shed, she regained consciousness and started to struggle with Myron again. She wakes up and starts to fight again. Wow. And Myron's gloves were slick with blood, and he loses his grip on May. And she fell to the ground outside the shed of the abandoned house. So Myron had grabbed the um, and dragged the shock absorber with him. So he decided he needed a new weapon. Inside the shed, he found a piece of lumber that was about two feet long and six inches in diameter. Returning to May, Myron began to strike her around the head and face, fracturing her skull and causing major cranial damage. So now she's really bleeding heavily. He's broken the bones in her head and her face. Uh. She stops again. She passes out again. However, Myron knew she wasn't dead because he could still hear her breathing and like, get in like gurgling and choking on her own blood. She's still alive. I know this is awful. This is horrible. I know. There's some revenge, but just listens. Okay. <laughs> Myron then grabs May's legs and pulls her into the shed. And once in the shed, he pulls off her snow pants and pulls down her underwear. Myron wanted to see her genitals, but it was too dark in the shed. Myron pulled down his own pants and laid on top of her to rape her, but he couldn't slash didn't know how to perform an actual sex act. So now he's absolutely fucking furious that his plan to rape, you know, is knocked off the side because he doesn't know what he's doing. And he picks up the piece of lumber again and strikes her several more times. The whole attack so far was like less than five minutes. Wow. But Myron said he felt exhausted. He rested for a minute, and he was appalled that May is still struggling to breathe after all this. And he's scared that May, that he, she hasn't died yet, and none of this is going to his plan. This was not his plan, you know. She, in his plan, she's dead by now. So Myron said he knew he had to make sure May was dead because she called out his name, and she knew that who had attacked her. He was afraid he's going to get caught. He was sure that she would tell on him. So Myron picked up the lumber for a third time and started beating her in the face. He shattered her eye sockets smashed her nose, and knocked out several teeth. Still, May had not died, but continued to hurt with her labored breathing. Gee. Oh, I know. She's strong. So according to Myron's confession, at this point, he's starting to wonder, quote, oh no, 
what did I do, end quote. A little late, buddy. Yeah. You are trying to kill a nine-year-old girl. That's what you've done. And he's like 13, 14 at this point. Um, I wrote, yeah, I wrote in my show notes, a little late for that. (laughs) (laughs) He began to freak out and blame May for the attack, blaming her for calling out and saying his name and bending down to her body and hissing into her ear that she was a stupid bitch. He was like, you're a stupid bitch. This is all your fault. This is what he's whispering to this little girl. So Myron begins to focus on hiding the body since right now he believes there's no witnesses, right? Mm -hmm. There was a nearby old outhouse that Myron thought he could stuff her down. He thought that even though she wasn't dead right now, she would soon freeze to death. So using all his strength, he lifted her up and tried to cram her body in, but no matter what he did, she didn't fit. So he gave up, looking for a new way to dispose of May. Myron dragged May through the snow again to the abandoned house, and he pulled her down into the basement. May was still alive and struggling to breathe. Myron said he wanted to weep with frustration at his inability to quiet her. He would whisper to her, quote, Please, May, just die, end quote. Myron found a broken window pane and remembered from class that a jugular vein cut could kill someone. So he slashed May's throat twice with the broken glass and finally she dies. Myron pulls her dead body into a root cellar and closes the door. Myron started for home again and partway there realized at some point he lost his right glove. He checked the shed in the outhouse but couldn't bring himself to check the abandoned house. So he checks outside but he can't go in. Myron walked down a few streets before burying his left glove in a snowbank. When Myron returned home after just after 10 p.m., his mother Anna noticed the blood on his coat and pants. Myron told her that he helped a drunk man that had a bloody nose. And Anna was relieved that Myron wasn't hurt and was proud that her son had stopped to help someone during a snowstorm. Yeah. Anna washed the blood out of his clothes and Myron went to bed. By this time, May's grandparents had already called the police. And by the next morning, Vandaling was just crawling with the police. Vandaling's a small town and a missing child is big news. Anna's, Anna, Myron's mom, told her son that, quote, something must have happened last night, end quote, due to the police activity. Myron dressed quickly in the same clothes he had on the night before, those he was wearing when he killed May, and he heads outside. Suspiciously enough, that day at school, Myron asked Louis Louis for a favor and told Louis that if anybody asked about it, Myron lost his gloves while helping a drunk guy the night before. And Louis's like, okay, I mean, he doesn't doesn't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So school was dismissed early and the children went home because the whole town is in an uproar. The local paper, the Scranton um, Tribune, ran the story of the little girl lost from the front page that morning. Police were talking to residents, trying to create a timeline of May's whereabouts. That evening, the town gossip let everybody know that May's body had been found up the street. This lady named Loretta Armstrong had gone outside to dump her coal ashes as the temperatures had risen enough that day to melt snow enough to leave a thin ice trail. So she's trying to break the ice up with the ashes. Mm -hmm. So she's spreading the ashes on the ice when she noticed what looked like like fresh blood dotting the snow from the head wound. She's seeing the blood trail. And Loretta follows the blood trail until she spotted what looked like a pair of bloody mittens half frozen in the snow. They're maize mittens. And she ran to the first group of searchers, and she tells them about what she found. The blood trail goes from the fried garage, which is easy to follow, through the different places Myron had dragged May, all the way to the root cellar, because May was bleeding this whole time. They found the ice cream cone bag outside of the shed, so they know that she had been there at one point. Responding officers said that had she not been missing... No one would have known who the body was, as her face had been battered beyond recognition. It was a mass of bloody flesh, 
Her snow pants were missing and her underwear were down around her ankles. And Myron did have a lot of suspicious behavior that we know is suspicious, suspicious behavior now. Like, he would insert himself into different aspects of the investigation, asking a lot of questions about what information the police had, offering to walk young girls home so they wouldn't, don't have to be alone. Oh, goodness. Uh-huh. But nothing so massive that it brought the attention of the police. And they were looking for a grown man, not like a 14-year-old boy. They let Myron go after questioning him originally. However, he did mention seeing a girl walking behind him. And Louie, while they walked home that night, he said she was wearing a red coat with a hood and that she was by herself. The police did find a man's bloodstained glove nearby in the snow. And it was made by, it was finally made by an exp uh, expensive manufacturer. So they do find his glove. He's a spoiled kid and this is a nice glove for the area. Mm -hmm. So, vandaling in the surrounding towns go on high alert, and I'm not even joking. Like, they're, at one point they're worried that people are going to just start killing other people because they're worried that there's a child rapist killer out there. A brutal one. Everyone's worried about a child sex fiend that had brutalized a girl to death. People considered loners, odd, those with criminal records or mentally ill, were scrutinized by the police. People were worried, police were worried that if they didn't catch the killer soon, Tensions would boil over and someone might be hurt or killed. Everyone was looking at their neighbors sideways and children were being kept close to home. Hmm. They found, so the found glove was sent to the crime lab where a technician noticed that the wearer had a defect in their right pinky finger. Local police found the manufacturer sold the gloves exclusively to one store and the store owner remembered selling the gloves to Myron and his mother and Myron has a malformed right pinky finger. Wow, they were smart back then. Yes. So the police were floored that it was a young person because they're looking at adults this whole time. And they picked up both Myron and Louie who had been together that night. Louie explains that there was a girl walking behind them that night, but it was dark and snowing too hard to give any details. He couldn't see her plainly. And the officers checked and Myron did not go to the pool hall like he told Louie he did. Myron... Uh, Myron's story changes a few times before he gives a full confession after being confronted by officers holding his blood-soaked glove. So once they show him the glove, he's like, oh shit, I'll, let me tell you what happened. Uh, Myron was giving the police the creeps, okay? He was telling funny stories on the ride to the garage and because um, they wanted to take him there so he can go over what happened. And he points out places where, that he thought were significant, like, here's where I slipped, here's where I found my weapon... And he told them that he was shocked when she said his name, as he thought she didn't know him. Myron is not having appropriate reactions to what he'd done. Yeah. He was totally off emotionally, and his confession was 20 pages tight. Holy moly. Yes. In Pennsylvania at that time, there was a precedent that said, quote, A male child between the ages of 7 and 14 is presumed incapable of committing a crime. End quote. And Myron's like 13, 14. So to rectify the issue, the officer in charge omitted Myron's age on the arrest warrant because he didn't want anybody to know that they can't actually arrest him because of his age. And the crime was considered so heinous, the officer knew Myron had to face justice for it. Like, we can't let him go just based on age. It, people are going to lose their minds. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Myron became the youngest person ever charged with first-degree murder in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And his parents were emotionally traumatized uh, yeah you would be yes and both his parents equally like his mom continues passing out through the court 
proceedings. But at one point, they both pass out. Both his parents pass out at the courthouse. They're just so overwhelmed. And the people of Vandaling were rocked over the information that it was Myron. Quote, what they refer to as the golden boy, mm -hmm. end quote, of Vandaling. So Myron's attorneys were worried about Myron receiving the death penalty. People were really stirred up over the little girl's very brutal death, and the public was calling for blood. They had him plead guilty in the hopes that he would do time in a mental, in mental institution and then be sent to a minimum security prison. And Myron's parents stayed dedicate him to him throughout the whole process, although he was aloof towards them. Like, his mom was, like, trying to fawn all over him. He's like, basically, get off me. So, January 18th, 1945, just 16 days after the murder, a grand jury indicted Myron on the charge of first-degree murder, setting the trial date for February 5th. Myron's lawyers had him examined by a, quote, alienist, end quote, which is what they used to call psychologists slash psychiatrists. Oh, that's great. Yes, I love that term. Yeah. And just to let you know, a psychiatrist is an MD and a psychologist has a PhD. Sometimes people get confused. Okay. MDs treat patients, psychologists do not, PhDs do not. The psychiatrist found Myron to be intellectually brilliant for his age, but also said that he was, quote, immature, emotionally blunted, and should be considered pre-schizophrenic, end quote. Myron had complained to the psych doc of violent headaches and dizziness. So here's the mom blaming. Ready? So the psychiatrist suggested that maybe Myron's issues stem from the fact that his mom, Anna, made Myron sit and listen to adult conversations, and it gave him unusual knowledge of current events for his age. The doctor then proclaimed Myron to be mentally ill and in need of treatment at a psychiatric hospital. Hmm. So the first week of May 1945, Myron is found guilty of first-degree murder. They have the glove, the fact that he asked Louis to lie, and his confession. He was to be sent to the psychiatric hospital until the age of 15. After that, he was to be sent to a boys' camp until the age of 21. And then he was to spend the, spend the remainder of his life in Eastern State Penitentiary. At Allentown Psychiatric Hospital, Allen falls for a 15-year-old girl named Mabel. She is a regular teenager who was put in the hospital by her parents for being a jackass, basically. Okay. She's not mentally ill, but her parents are like, I can't handle you to the mental hospital. So in October... Five months after getting there, he finds out he's going to be transferred. The new hospital meant that um, Myron wouldn't be able to see his parents. He wasn't um, too into his parents, but they were taking him off campus to eat and to shop. So this murderer is going off campus to eat and shop with his parents. I can't believe it. Wow. Yeah. And um, I wrote a convicted killer, convicted killer out in town with his parents. Yeah. And mm. I'm shocked that people... Oh, just wait till they find out. They do find oh, out because... Okay. So it's also, um, it's also meant that if he moves hospitals, he's not going to be able to see Mabel. So the two of them ran away. Mabel had run away a few times, and so it was no big deal. But now a child killer is on the loose with her, right? Mm -hmm. So once again, rumors are flying about where Myron is going. What he's doing with Mabel. What could he possibly do to other children? Local radio broadcasters broke through programs to give bulletins on the missing teens. People in Vandaling found out about Myron's excursions through the town and the luxuries he was able to have at, at the hospital, and they were enraged. Yeah. yeah, enraged, yeah. Despite the fervor, three days later, the two of them were found sleeping in a car outside of a restaurant within 25 miles of the hospital. They had wandered in the cold for a day and a night, stole a little food to eat, hitchhiked, and ran into a man named Mark Peters. 
So Mark was married twice and had three kids. And at first he seemed like a nice guy when he picked the two up while they were hitchhiking. Then he started to use vulgar language and staring at Mabel. Mark Peters then drives them to a deserted wooded area and has Myron get out of the car and he tells Mabel to get into the back seat. It's unfortunate. So Myron stood outside as Mark raped Mabel. Myron said he was too afraid to interfere because he thought Mark was going to kill them after he was done. After the rape, Mark Peters starts driving again as if nothing happened and drives to the store where he worked. Is that night? That's a psychopath. Yeah. Mark's boss sees Mabel and Myron in the car and tells Mark that they are fugitives. Mark then drives them to a restaurant, buys them some much-needed food, and tells them that they can sleep in the car, and that's how police find them. Mark Peters was charged with raping Mabel. His lawyers tried to object, claiming that Mabel was not a reliable witness, and they said that she was insane. Like, no, no, I know she said that he raped her, but she's insane, and she's wrong. Yeah. But a doctor at the hospital was called to confirm that Mabel was not insane, just slightly troubled. Like, she's not insane, she just acts like an asshole because she's 15. Mm -hmm. right? Both Mark and Myron changed their stories a few times about what happened, but a jury did find him guilty of rape, and they also recommended leniency on him. So Mark Peters was sentenced to one and a half years to three years in prison for the rape of a 15-year-old girl. The hospital was investigated after the escape of a confessed killer. More people had heard about the last conditions that Myron was being held under, so the judge ordered Myron to be sent to Eastern State Penitentiary right away despite his age. People believed that he needed to be punished and not coddled. Eastern State Penitentiary was considered... The world's first, quote, true prison. It had solitary confinement and was constructed so you couldn't see your neighbors. You never saw other prisoners during exercise time and complete silence was enforced. When Myron had arrived, some of the rules were loosened, but it was still just a bad place to be. Wow. In 1953, Myron petent uh, petitioned the State Board of Pardons asking for a life sentence to be commuted. When he answered the question, quote, how have you conducted yourself while in prison, end quote, Myron commented on his good behavior and ended with, quote, I have been, I have so behaved to earn the goodwill of the prison officials, end quote. They felt like he was only acting right in order to get out, but that he hadn't changed, so they kept him in prison. Hmm. So over and over, Myron petition, uh, petitions the state to be let out, and Maystad is there at the proceedings to remind officials of the brutality of Myron's crime against his daughter. Myron never really acknowledges the severity of his crime. In 1965, the general public are starting to change their feelings toward Myron. The public is starting to feel like he paid for his crime that he had committed 20 years earlier. Unfortunately, Jim Barrett, May's father, died in a car crash that year. Without him at the appeal hearings to remind everyone of the crime and its toll, Myron is released on parole that year by the governor. What happened to his mother? Or her mother? Remember, she died of ovarian cancer, oh, yeah. and that's why she's being raised by her maternal yeah. grandparents. So but Myron, the grandparents aren't there. No, they're dead too at this so point. So everybody's dead at this point. She has her sister and that's it. But she doesn't go to this? No, and I think at this point her sister's like 25. Hmm. Yeah, because her sister was, May was nine and her sister was even younger. So Myron passed away. Uh, oh no, Myron married a woman who was older than him and he started a family. At this point he's in his mid-30s. His parents passed away almost 20 years after his release and he lived a crime-free life until he died at age 60 in 2005. You think he lived <laughs> a, a crime-free crime -free life. life. Right? He's probably still a psychopath. I'll give that to you. 
I mean, yeah, when I read this, at first I was like, I don't know if I could read this book, and then I couldn't put it down. It has, like, so many twists and turns. Crazy. Oh, it's messed up. All right, you've been listening to Michigan Another Mayhem with Allie. And Jen. Connect with us at michigananothermayhem.com to join the conversation, listen to the podcast, access the show notes, find site links, or correct us when necessary. Rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Anchor, and YouTube. Bye-bye now.